All right. So just again, for everybody who's joining us, um, uh, you find the link. Well done. Um, we're always a little bit chaotic. That's what makes it parotheology. A little bit messy, a little bit crazy. Um, and uh, that's a bit of my personality. So there you go. <laughs> and I'm currently in Belfast. Uh, I'm here with Jay Baker's downstairs giving a sermon. So if you get bored of this one, you can go on his Facebook page and you will see him. If you want to see the downstairs of my friend's house, it's a bit chaotic. <laughs> you can you can click into his Facebook and see him. I think I can hear him downstairs. Um, so he's preaching the good word at Revolution. And I'm preaching the good word of parotheology upstairs. Uh, we've been here. Um, I was here just over a week. He's been here about a week. He goes home in a couple of days. And uh, I've got another uh, nine days here. So just enjoying being home and seeing family and friends and whatnot. Um, okay, so I'm gonna get started. Um, uh, as always on a Coffee and Concepts, I'm gonna kind of start by talking for like 15 minutes, maybe a little bit more, uh, and then we'll kind of open it up to conversation. So feel free just to unmute yourself and to talk. Um, what I actually want to do tonight is actually preview what I want to spend some time doing in 2022. So in 2022, I'm going to be talking about uh, a number of things. And one of them is called the four discourses. And if you're on your computer right now, you can type four discourses into Google and you'll get this little diagram um, of four different kind of like what's called math themes or algebraic structures. And um, I'm going to be in 2022, probably at least two or three Paro seminars that will be connected to these discourses and probably at least a couple of coffee and concepts. And I'm sure there'll even be a reading group. But, you know, so that's that's what's coming. And I'm going to kind of preview it a little bit in relation to the theme. So the theme is projection and Paro theology, right, um, which is connected to the talk I gave at Wake and that you will have watched two weeks ago. And in that, just to kind of do a very quick overview, one of the things I was saying is, so projection at its most simple is this idea that we, there's parts of ourselves that we are not aware of directly, not consciously, but they arise out of us. And what we, we do, um, not all of us, but what people tend to do um, is uh, the parts of ourselves that, that we are not able to directly confront um, are projected onto others. And we don't really know we're doing this, but we often treat others. Uh, we put parts of ourselves into them and we may love them or hate them or have some sort of relationship of kind of like ambiguity or um, ambivalence towards them. But actually what we sometimes hate in our enemies and love in our friends are parts of ourselves. Um, or, or what might be more true to say is that um, elements of early relationships with others that, that we put on to, to ourselves. I mean, would it be too much, um, Hiroshi, I did see you there, and I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't know if you're still, oh yeah, there you are in top corner. Like, do you want to say a few words about projection as a therapist? Do you want to like um, fill anything in? You don't have to, but just thinking if you wanted to like do a, a minute or two or even an example of projection that you've seen in therapeutic in, environment. Uh, sure. Um, I suppose the most common would be um, someone who's jealous 
and sees in any partner that they have um, infidelity. Um, I see that a lot. Uh, I certainly also see um, uh, it, it often comes from trauma um, from when you're younger. And uh, um, for instance, uh, seeing abandonment everywhere is another example. Um, so yeah, thank you. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, because it's a bread and butter of my friends who are therapists. You know this this notion of projection and you project. And so the analyst in psychoanalysis often the analyst is one who allows the projections to take place. That's why often analysts try not to give too much of their personality away, try not to, they don't counsel very much. I mean, psychotherapeutic psychoanalysts will occasionally counsel, they'll occasionally give you advice or often more often an interpretation, but, but more often than not, you sit in silence and the therapist doesn't say very much and the projection occurs. And then very gradually, the person might come to see that they're treating the analyst like they're treating their partner or their parent and they begin to see some aspect of that relationship and kind of work through that relationship in the in the clinic in the analysis now um what i was talking about at wake was the importance in parotheology of the liturgical structure being a type of screen upon which people project their notions of god and often their unconscious notions are not not even like they may not even believe in God. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's almost the kind of their idea of the absolute that is, 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 is seen in the liturgical structure. And what I was talking about in the wake talk was the idea that maybe we see God as the one who's going to fix everything. He's going to give us the answer. He's going to bring back the person who's sick. Who's going to heal the person who's dying. Right. Um, but so we bring that to the liturgy and we actually put it onto the liturgy. Like we almost, we want that scene in the sermon. We want it seen in the songs. We kind of, we imagine that, that what we are projecting onto the liturgical structure will, will take and will be given back to us. So one example might be, we know the minister doesn't believe half of what they say, right? You know, they're having a terrible relationship with their partner, they have doubts and questions, but as long as they pretend to have the answers and, and give us a kind of like, they have the confidence, they believe in our behalf. So something I've talked about elsewhere is the idea that I might have doubts and questions in the, in the pew, and the minister has doubts and questions, but as long as the minister kind of, I pretend to the minister that I'm solid, the minister pretends to me that they're solid and we're all okay, the structure continues on. And something I've seen often, genuinely a number of times, is when a minister comes to the point where they're very honest about their doubts and questions. Just, just up the road, there was a guy in a church called City Church years ago and he actually preached a sermon based on something Brian McLaren said. I think he said, like, I just feel like um, Alice in Wonderland was trying to find my way home. I don't have the answers, you know, I'm just, I'm struggling myself. And he was very honest about that. And what was interesting was he went on sabbatical. And when he came back from sabbatical, they kindly asked him to step down. And they brought in somebody younger from England who whether or not they believed at all, was willing to say that they believed everything from the pulpit. But, but I, I knew a lot of the people in the church. I was very close to that community. And what seemed to be the case is that everybody knew that Mark had doubts. 
he was very actually connected with the congregation, had lots of friends, and he was very honest, right? But when it was put in the liturgical structure itself, not having coffee with a friend and whatever outside of the liturgical structure, when Mark stood up as a type of um, uh, screen upon which people say, this is, this is God, and said it in that way, people were quite shocked. But they weren't shocked by what they didn't know. They were shocked by what they did know, but they didn't want to know that they knew, right? So it's in the same way that if someone says, I think your partner's having an affair, right? So let's say someone says, and there's two, let's say two reactions. One is the person's like shocked. Oh my goodness, what? Really? Why do you say that? What's, what, what happened, right? Or the second one is, how dare you say that? Get out of my house. I don't want to talk to you again. That's terrible. Right. Now, that second response it doesn't always mean this, but it, it can be a hint that the person knows it, but they don't want to know that they know it. Right. So the anger is not a response to a lack of knowledge. The anger is in response to a knowledge that they do want to know something that they kind of feel, but are trying to avoid confronting. So whenever my friend said that stuff, there was an anger from some people in the congregation and it felt to him and to me and to others that some of that anger was not because they were surprised it was because they didn't want to be confronted liturgically with that doubt they wanted to get back the god who knows and is in control or whatever and whenever mark doubted that was almost like god you know because if you think of the liturgical structure as a type of expression of the voice of god you know so in parotheology one of the things i was talking about was that people project this notion of god as whole and complete and having the answers and what icon did as transformance art did is it took those projections on it allowed those projections to happen but then it attempted to kind of not, kind of to refuse to give people back that projection, to, to refuse to kind of like give back that wholeness and completeness, but to take it and to expose it, to bring it to the surface. And then ultimately step two was to um, express a type of doubt, complexity and ambiguity within the liturgical structure itself, right? So it took the... It kind of took the suppressed questions and doubts and fears of the congregation. It took them on and it expressed them. And then it kind of gave back a God of dividedness. Now, I can give a couple of concrete examples. But I want to be very quick because I want to get on to the, the meat. <laughs> um, but, but an example of icon sins of the father uh, were people wrote down times where they felt God had sinned against them. So it was this service where we turned everything around and we wrote down when we felt we were honest and raw, when someone was estranged from their family, when, when, when they, they got a terminal illness or someone they loved got a terminal illness, just things that happened that completely destroyed them, that felt like whenever they were trying to be the best that they could be. And this, this community had lots of people who, came from the religious environment and things started to go wrong in their lives and they were shocked by this it kind of it caught them i didn't i was never supposed to get divorced right that was never supposed to happen that wouldn't have that happened to other people it was never going to happen to me you know that kind of thing and they that 
in sins of the father, those, those things were, say, written down. So we got people to actually express those parts of themselves in written form. And in during that gathering, we took these things. And if they weren't X, we read them out. So everyone in the gathering started to hear the doubts, the, the pain, the suffering, the questioning, the difficulties that was surrounding them. So that now came up to the surface. And then we sent them up to heaven through burning them to send the aroma up to heaven. But then part of the gathering was using some writings and some poetry and some music to not answer that doubt and questioning and suffering, but to almost say that that the religious structure was able to in, take that on and that there was something about living with that and expressing that that brought us into the very heart of God's forsakenness, God's experience of suffering and loss and God's experience in crucifixion. You know, so that was the connection. Right. So this is where I want to bring in the four discourses. And I, I don't want to talk for too long because this is coffee and concepts and open up. But for Lacan, he uh, articulates, uh, he basically makes a basic good insight, right? Which is, there's not just talking. When I talk to you, there's not just what we communicate, but there's different ways to communicate. And the way a teacher communicates with a student is different from a prison warder to a prisoner, um, is different to someone who asks you a question sincerely or someone who asks you a question to trap you, right? So there's what's said, and then there's the, the type of social relation you have with the person, right? And Lacan was, when he talked about the four discourses, he was trying to describe what psychoanalysis is, the kind of discourse that happens in psychoanalysis. So that's what he was trying to answer He was in this year that he does this seminar um, called The Other Side of Psychoanalysis. And he basically is trying to go, what, what is this weird communication that an analyst does with an analyzant, right? Because it doesn't look like a university discourse. It doesn't look like what you see in universities. It doesn't look like what you see between an employer and an employee, right? It's, it's a different type of speaking. Even actually if the same things are being said, it's a, there's a different type of, of, uh, of relationship. And so Lacan wants to help um, his students understand what this weird type of speaking is going on in the analytic setting. And why is it different from what you see in a university? Um, or as I say, with an employer, in an employee-employer relationship. And so he develops four discourses. And again, it's not that there's only four, but these are four interconnected ways of having a social relation. And he, these four are very interconnected, as we will see in the future, in 2022. I'm trying to keep you as patrons here. <laughs> um, in 2022, you will discover why. But um, these four discourses are interconnected. And his main reason for showing these four discourses is to try to look at what the analytic relationship is, the type of speech that happens. And this, I think, is really, really important to understand what we're doing in parotheology. Uh, with projection um, and the and the liturgy, so very quickly, and I'm only I say that if you if you're looking at it online, you'll see that each discourse has four is is a matrix that has four spaces, 
And in each of those four spaces, there's a symbol. And in the future, we're going to go through all of those symbols and we're going to go all through those spaces and we're going to learn, learn them and see if there's anything valuable. Some of you will think there is, some of you will think there isn't. That's great. We'll all be, <laughs> we'll all be having those discussions. I'm just going to talk about probably the, 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 one, of the, one of the locations, which is the top left um, tonight. Um, or even actually just the basics of what these four discourses are. That's what I'm going to do. So the first discourse he talks about is called the master's discourse. And the basic way to understand the master's discourse is the master's discourse is whenever someone's communicating with you, but it's a demand that you just have to obey, right? You know, I say employee employer relationship where somebody might as right. They're telling you to do something. They just have a demand. You don't even know why they're telling you. You don't have to know it's irrelevant. They're just telling you to do something and you have to do it. That's the master's discourse. Um, and, and the secret to the master's discourse, the secret, by the way, is the bottom right, bottom left, sorry, bottom left, if you're looking at the, 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 the matrix. Um, the secret of the master's discourse is a master is divided. Right. If there's a master, someone telling you what to do, an employer or whatever, um, the truth is they're just as divided as you. Right. That's the secret. But they're trying to deny it and uh, they try to hide that. Right. But that's the master is just telling you what to do. Then the second type of discourse is the university discourse. The university discourse is where the authority figure, which is the which is in the um, the top left, the authority figure is a person of knowledge and they're telling you what you should do, right? What you shouldn't do, right? They're giving you some sort of knowledge. Um, and the secret of the university discourse controversially is that often the person who's telling you what you should do, who you should vote for, what you should do, et cetera, et cetera, is actually in the service of those in power, right? Now, that it's not always the case, but a, a lot of university discourses, what you're being told you should do is really in the, in the pockets of big companies or government or like people who have money, right? Um, but what they, what they do is they hide that and, um, you know, you're given the university discourse. So it's called rationalization. So um, now those two types of discourse are both authoritarian and they both have the master in control. One is the person is telling you what to do or they're trying to bamboozle you with knowledge. They're trying to tell you who you should vote for, et cetera, et cetera. They're giving you this knowledge and um, trying to address your desire, trying to answer your question of who should I be? Who, who am I? What should I do? The university discourse tries to give you rationalizations. Now, this is where I'm going to do the parotheology bit. These four discourses can be applied to anything, really, but I'm going to apply it to theology. And I'm going to say that there's a type of master's discourse in which God just tells us what we should do. And the church just gives us the command. It's divine, divine command theory. Basically, God speaks, tells us what to do, and our job is to do it, <laughs> to interpret it and to do it. And uh, there's types of church. And by the way, this is not all bad. There's none of these discourses are all bad or all good um, because the master's discourse produces something. Again, we'll find out more in the future, but it produces knowledge. It, people, whenever someone tells you to do something, you have to learn how to do it. So you learn skills, you learn know-how. So literally in a master-slave economy, like way back 
where where basically there were people who owned other people and still happens today but we're talking about economic systems um the is actually the slaves who ended up having knowledge right because they they were the ones who had to cook and to build and to to do the stuff so it produced knowledge and it, and actually for hegel that that position ultimately overthrows the master because the people who are forced to do everything are the ones that get the know-how, get the knowledge, whereas the masters just get lazy. And um, and basically, so that's important in Marxism as well, but Hegel is like the, the momentum of history comes from the oppressed. The oppressed just by, by dint of having to work and to learn and to survive eventually become strong. So, but... But in a church setting, just think of a church in which it's like, this is what God says, and we have to respond to it, and we have to do what God says. So there's, there's one type of church. And then we can imagine a second type of church, which is a not the university discourse, where God tells us who to vote for, what to do in terms of politics, and uh, all of that. So it's a, you know, one might be a fundamentalist church. And one must, might be a progressive church. So fundamentalist churches might be master's discourses and progressive churches might be university discourses, you know, who, where you do get, um, although, um, you know, fundamentalist church might tell you who to vote for as well, but they might not give you reasons for it, just tell you to do it because <laughs> God said, um, whereas uh, maybe in, in some other church, you'll get lots of reasons why you should do what you should do. Okay, so there's two types of churches university and master now we get to parotheology i'm trying to do a lot here my goodness <laughs> and we get to the other two discourses which are called the hysterics and the analysts so the analyst discourse uh, now you could by the way lacan sees the first two as masculine and the second two as feminine not male or female so much but two forms of two forms of discourse types um, and so the second one is that the analyst discourse will do is where, um, oh yeah, where the one who's doing the addressing reflects back to you your own divided self. And, now, and it's called the analyst discourse because this is what happens in psychoanalysis, right? Psychoanalysis isn't a master's discourse. It's not telling you what you should do. Some therapy might be, right? You should do this. You should break up with that person, right? That would be that would be an analyst being a master's discourse, just telling you, you should break up with that person. They're bad for you, right? Um, you could have you could have a therapist as a university discourse. Actually, you know, you could have. Uh, and and by the way, we all want a therapist who's a master. Like there's so many of us go to the therapist and go tell us what we should do. I want you to tell me what I should do, right? We we want a master, um, or we want a therapist who want who. Um, who gives us reasons, you know, gives, helps us rationalize what, 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 what's my problem? What are my symptoms? Can, can you put me in the DSM and tell me exactly what I am? And I'd give reasons, you know, that's kind of university discourse. Um, so uh, Lacan didn't like the DSM very much and potentially it's because it's a, it's a type of university discourse, right? It kind of, you explain the person and all of that. The analyst is, the analyst discourse is where you through all of this stuff, project all of this stuff onto the other. And you begin to see yourself as a divided subject. 
through this projection and through the analyst occasionally giving interventions, occasionally going, hmm, ah, I noticed you said this word a number of times. I noticed. So they're, they're, instead of speaking as a master or a, a professor, they are really trying to cultivate an encounter with yourself. So they are there to cultivate an encounter with yourself and your own unconscious. So in the analyst discourse, you experience yourself as divided. Now, when it comes to parotheology, what does that mean? Well, it means the first, I would say, like the first aim of transformance art is that the people go into the community, into the transformance art event, and they, they project out onto the liturgy their, themselves. And the liturgy gradually draws up their own dividedness, their, the, the doubts, the pain, the contradictions, the antagonisms that are within the congregation and within the subject begin to be reflected in the liturgy itself. So, so, and that's very, very different from a confessional type of church where the liturgy is not designed as a master or a professor, but first and foremost, as, as the mirror in which people encounter their own questioning and doubts and their own unknowing and that and that begins to arise and it's allowed to breathe and then the main key of parotheology <laughs> um, and by the way i've only just got into the four discourses recently again i, I knew them basically but I, I only recently really threw myself into them i was like oh this is such a good way to understand where parotheology differs from confessional church where the where the practice the technology of parotheology is different from the technology of the confessional church. So it's an analyst discourse at first, and then um, it's an hysterics discourse. And the hysterics discourse is the one in which the divided subject is in the space of the speaker. And what that means is um, an hysterical discourse is where you know yourself to be divided, to be conflictual. You ask yourself, who am I? What am I? Um, I don't know where I should be. What The, the world is not, I, I'm, I'm productively maladapted to the world. I don't feel at one with the world. And who is the hysteric talking to? They're talking to the master, which means they are the ones who are, who are confronting the, the, the authority of, of systems. They're the one who's saying, is this the way it has to be? you know, justify yourself. Why are you, why do you want this of me? So it's basically, this is again, why Lacan didn't want, he always hated therapy that made people adapted to the world. Because for Lacan, you actually want people to be productively maladapted to the world, to enjoy their dividedness. And actually, if you're looking at the four discourses under the hysterics, you'll see what the letter A, which means desire, that you enjoy, you secretly enjoy your dividedness. And, and it's productive because it, it makes demands of authority structures. And then if you're looking at the little thing, the last bit is, and what, what that produces is knowledge. Anyway, right. Um, so what does that mean for parotheology? And I think this is where parotheology has something unique to, to give to the Christian church. Um, because what if God is then the divided subject? That's the point of parotheology is that the first move is that the, the liturgy brings out your own doubts, questions, ambiguities. That's why how not to speak of God was all about doubt and unknowing. It brings all of that to the surface. But then secondly, 
it says that God is divided. And I, yeah, I, yeah, th this gets more complicated now if you're looking, okay, what's, so the divided God then speaks to um, a part of ourselves that we just take to be the way it is. Okay, one way of describing this, and I know this is all very abstract, is if, you, if you're looking at the, the four discourses, you'll notice the analyst discourse. It has the A, which is desire. So the analyst is just reflecting your own desire, your own unknown desires, right? You're projecting your own unknowing desires onto the analyst. And then you're discovering your dividedness. And you'll see a barred S means a divided subject. And then underneath that, you will see a symbol that says S1. And S1 means that eventually you hit something where you just go, that's the way I am. You hit something that can't be interpreted. You hit something that's like a rock. And then in the hysterics discourse, God addresses that rock, that thing that you just say, I'm just this, I just believe this. And God is the hysteric is questioning that, opening things up, getting you to start questioning into thinking and to into movement. So in a nutshell, parotheology is about hystericizing God. It's making God into an hysteric <laughs> in, the, in, the, um, in the liturgical hour. And what I mean by that is that this, the songs and the sermons and the prayers are not simply showing you your own doubt and unknowing. And they're not simply accepting them and saying, yes, but one day you'll know the answer. You know, God, who is mysterious and unknown, um, will one day be known. But at the moment, we don't. This is, um, this is where you say in this, the paratheological idea of God is unknown to God. There is an unknowingness to God in God's self. And that doubt and unknowing that you have is actually woven into the absolute itself. And that's what paratheology is attempting to do. Okay, so I hope that, that, that kind of made some sense, but now I want you to jump in, ask questions, comments, all of that. So does anybody want to start us off? Um, Thank you. So this blew my mind and I want to say something before I forget it, but yeah, this is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, well, this is, this yeah. is my newest stuff. So I'm just, I'm I so excited it. about this because this is the first time I've talked about this. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I think like you're saying, most churches use that master and university discourse because the projection they're doing is atonement, right? They're projecting sin and guilt onto Christ in the crucifixion. That's the ultimate projection. But we can do this different projection. I mean, Christ is the projection of God as a divided subject, both man and God, both divine and dead. It's the ultimate uh, revelation of our own division as subjects. And then when we try to be Christ-like and Christiform, we are recognizing that division, and then we can formulate a hysteric discourse. Once we see that division through Christ, through the God who becomes divided as a human being, right? So, yeah, sorry, I'm excited too. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> who else wants to jump in? So uh, would a child fit within the more hysterical uh, discourse? And then, uh, and then as a parent, you, I mean, cause there's, there's, there's somewhat that, that returning to a child and then um, mm. 
and then going up again in this this continual cycle of trying to find the self. You know, I never thought of it like that, but yeah, I think that's quite interesting. Is like um, we, when you're a child, you do feel incredibly divided, incredibly uh, fragmented. And so when it, that's a beautiful way to read that idea of to become like children again, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I've never thought of that. So I just like it. But if that's where you're going, I think there's some, something very interesting there. Hi, Peter. Oh, hey, Angus. Is this um, a way of describing, if we were to be talking about the Hegelian process, a way of talking that when there's the affirmation and the negation the different things that can stall the process and continue to move towards the negation and the negation, and also the ways of sort of um, cooperating with moving in the direction of the negation and the negation. Yes, if you're saying, because it was, I was, I didn't say this explicitly, but I was touching on this idea that 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 in the in the um, the hysterics discourse is the hysteric is, is, is um, speaking to something that just is, something that is not, not dialecticized, not kind of like it's just is, like I'm just scared of rats. There's no reason for it. I know, you know, I'm not gonna explain it. I just hate rats, right? Um, but eventually you dialecticize it and you start to associate and it starts to move. And so, yeah, if you're saying, yeah, that the point of this in a sense is to keep the, the dialectic moving and that process moving 100%. You know, that's very insightful. Yeah. So then is so then projection or transference would be a way of sort of stalling, um, stalling the continuing to move in the dialectic. Well, yeah. So um, until you wake up to what's happening and then you're able to see the reflection back. Yeah. So projection is like key. Projection transference, they're they're key, but until they become the mechanism, and so in the until they're fed back to you, as you're saying, yes, until they you start to see them at work, then there's a problem. But as you start to work through them, yes, the movement happens. And that's what the analyst discourse is trying to do, I think, is that the analyst discourse is a type of bridge to the hysterics discourse. The analyst discourse is trying to use projection. So whereas almost I would say like sometimes a traditional church might takes on the projection of God as making fixing everything and then gives that back. This um, this is trying to kind of like show that that's what we're projecting onto God, but refute, but kind of like making that apparent. That so sense. then is um, could prayer uh, possibly be a form of analyst discord? Yes, absolutely. I think so. I mean, I love that idea that like uh, almost prayer is like a, it's the inner moons and groans of your being. Like it's speaking, you know, almost like the recipient of the prayer is yourself, as you know, like that mystic notion really is that there, the prayer always lands because you're the one who's supposed to hear it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you, you speak to God, but in that speech to God, you encounter something in yourself. Thank you. Thanks, man. And Matt, by the way, I really like that idea of um, Christ as a divided subject. Like that's, that's, I didn't say that and it didn't explicitly come into my head is that your Christ is the perfect notion of the barred subject of, of God being in the place of, of the speaking subject. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. And there's a great joke that reminds me of this, where someone asks Jesus, well, when did you first realize you were God? And Jesus goes, well, I was praying and I realized I was talking to myself. <laughs>
<laughs> Anybody else want to jump in? I have a question, Peter. Oh, hi, Linda. Um, it's is that Linda? No, no, I thought it was uh, Linda. Leah. I mean, there is a Linda. Linda oh, yeah, you Leah. Oh, you're right beside Linda in my little window. So go for it. <laughs> um, is there a symmetry in these four discourses that, you know, there's something in the step from masters to university? Is it similar from the step to analyst to hysterics or? Is there some kind of circular motion or symmetric relationship as you move from one to the other? Yeah, so that's a great, great question. So what you'll notice is, yes, like each one is a quarter turn. So every discourse, when you turn the four uh, math themes, you, okay. you get the different discourse. So there's this really interesting relationship, which we will go into, you know, in a deeper way in the future. But there, there is this interesting relationship. And the way I would describe it is, interestingly, it's a kind of asymmetrical relationship. This is why Lacan used the masculine-feminine thing, is he kind of almost like there's an inverted relationship. The, the masters and the university discourse and the aesthetics and the analyst discourse are, it's not so much yin and yang. It's, it's kind of like a, it's like a Mobius strip. There's this weird twist. I mean, even uh, that happens. So there, there's this definite relationship then you're and and you can almost see one goes to the other. The order is kind of master to university to analyst to hysteric. Although um, Lacan puts the hysteric at the end sometimes, or sorry, the analyst at the end sometimes. So there's this interesting relationship, but he almost sees there being a a fundamental inversion happens between the first two and the second two. Um, and I guess if, if I, because I don't have them in front of me, I'm doing this all the top of my head, but I think it's, um, I think the university, the inverse of the university discourse is, I guess, the hysterics discourse and the inverse of the university discourse is the analyst discourse. I could be wrong on that, so don't quote me. Um, but um yeah, there, there's, there's, yeah, anyway, do you want to come back to me on that? Ask me anything else on that? Because there's loads to say there. Um, well, I'm, I'm just curious about um, how the cycle continues. Because you mentioned the hysteric is actually speaking back to the master. The discourse mm -hmm. is directly back to the master. So is it kind of a perpetual motion machine? Yeah, some people, it almost feels like every time I read somebody different on the, the, the four discourses, they get something different out of them, and it's, which is hilarious because Lacan was using these math themes because he wanted to kind of minimize interpretation. He wanted a purity of, of and, and yet hilariously, these four discourses have a, such a wide range of um, interpretation. But yet some people think that, yeah, this is almost like... Um, you know, Lacan actually said to the hysterics of his day during the French protests, is you want a new master and you will have one. And, and so in a way, he was almost saying that the hysterics discourse leads to a new master's discourse. And the master's discourse will then, as you say, lead to a new... And there, yeah, so there's no end to the process. There's this movement. And that perhaps the answer is the movement itself, is the, like what Angus was saying. Oh, Le, you want to jump in on that? Well, I, I work with arts and kids. Oh, Linda, did you? I work with arts and kids and um, we talk about it more in terms of alternating the role of guest and host 
And I think with, with this language, what we're doing with our collaborative projects with the kids is a hysterics project. And we do present it back to the master discourse. And, but what, what we do is we invite the authority figures to come join us back in the process. We, we sort of um, present them our, our best shot and it is rather broken and, and semi-functional, but then we invite the authority figures to come join us in that process, which sounds like what you're saying. But what I'm looking for is a kind of a map to, to know how, like what, what would be in a, if, if this is a kind of a journey, how you could like with discernment and prudence kind of identify what's the next best type of discourse that could be appropriate for this project or for this group of people or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question for me, but I'm not sure if I, <laughs> um, the, the one interesting thing, but is that although Lacan sees them and, you know, this movement, um, definitely the better ones for Lacan are like, so for example, Lacan was very critical of science for a lot of, a lot of the contemporary scientific discourse and university discourse, because he said it was rationalization. He said the worst kind of intellectual life is the rationalization from those in power. There are people in power and the professors basically rationalize and the university becomes an institution to get you to be good workers, to rationalize the system as it currently is. But then Lacan, you know, he said, he said, no, but the best science and the best philosophy is an hysterics discourse. So because the, the best scientists are the ones who are questioning the authority of the scientific structure and ultimately kind of and getting it to bleed knowledge. It bleeds knowledge because they keep questioning what what is. So in some respects, that's why I look at parotheology and the analysts and the hysterics discourse, because in a way, I think they're the engine for the for change and transformation. So the hysterics discourse, I think, is a good discourse for the university, interestingly. And then in therapy, the analyst discourse is probably the ideal one. Um, but I don't know if that's any use. Oh, Linda, jump in. Oh, I can't hear you. You're muted. <laughs> Sorry. What there keeps coming to me is, um, is AA. So you come into it like an alcoholic or an addict comes into the program and they are told to shut up and listen. And so they sit down and they shut up and listen. And then um, university discourses when they start, you know, getting more familiar and they're being told what to do, but they also have some say in the process. And then they do their fourth step with their sponsor and they have the sponsor who um, is kind of on the journey with them, but also has some authority over them. And then of course they, do, they realize what an asshole they are and they, and they are really open about it and everyone laughs with them as opposed to being shame-based. And so the two bottom ones seem very top up. I mean, bottom up, the two, the two top, the one and two are top down. And, um, but I think like what Leah was just saying, what, what that brings up for me is, is the Gibbs triangle, you know, it's such an old fashioned model, but, um, but basically, you know, it talks about how like the, the small part of the top of the triangle is, is authority and, you know, large corporations and the, the very bottom large base is trust and collaboration. And if everything isn't based in that trust and collaboration, then you invert the triangle and it's unstable. And, um, and that's, Leah, that sounds like what your model is in with your students, you know, the guest host thing, I really like that. So, so to me, what happens is that once you admit that you're an asshole or, you know, I don't mean that literally, but you, you know what I'm saying, that you're able to laugh at yourself and the shame is released, then it, 
to me, this is when change actually happens, right? So this is when um, there's a natural course of change and transformation that happens in that acceptance of who you are, as opposed to just discovering it, but actually live it, living it, you know, openly. And then, then that, I think that's when the site, it becomes a cycle and um, the shifts, the big shifts happen, you know, everywhere. Anyway, I'll shut up. But. No, no, that was wonderful. That, that you actually, I mean, I, I've sat with these four discourses for a while, but I'm on my own and it's so much better talking it through with people because that's, that's a beautiful summary. Of, so in the, in the, um, in the hysterics discourse, there's the barred S, which is the divided subject. And then there's an A beneath it. And the A is desire. And so the idea is that you enjoy your dividedness <laughs> in one way, like, as you said, like you kind of like laugh at your, you, you enjoy that you're a bit of an asshole and all of that. Right. And it's that then that allows you to address what's not dialecticized, which is I'm just an alcoholic, right? That's it. That you, you're addressing right. this rock and it begins to bleed into you can begin to exactly. move it. Yeah, so that's very good. And by the right. way, you also clarified why I like AA so much because I never thought of AA because I, I think AA is this real innovation. It's the most similar thing in some respects structurally to what I'm doing in paratheology and you nailed mm -hmm. it there. Yeah, so thank you. Well, that's the beauty of the program, I think, is when people really suddenly start laughing at themselves mm -hmm. and other people are laughing with you as opposed to at you. It's And the shame is gone. It's just that that's... That's the real beauty of it, I think, even though they say it's about not drinking, which, of course, is the key to achieving that. But that's the real gift, I think. Yes, yes. And with AA, the person who runs the group is a divided subject, which is interesting. They're not the expert that you're going and paying a lot of money to to help you be better. Like they are going like I am myself an alcoholic. And uh, so right. they're, they're the divided subject. Right. Um, I was going to say then that. Um, then in, and the, the innovation in terms of theology then is the notion of, of God as divided subject. And that's, that's where, that's where I think, you know, for good or for bad, like, you know, this is uh, that I think that's what power of theology is trying to offer is this notion that um, of the split God as um, uh, Hiroshi just got me a book, which I haven't read yet. I didn't bring it to Belfast with me, but called the split God. Interestingly, and both like Hiroshi and myself, or a little bit kind of like, can you do this with Pentecostalism? But is this notion of, of um, the split God? So I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, yeah. Anybody else want to jump in in the last 10 minutes? I, uh, I went into faith after about 20 years of atheism. And it was, you know, I, I had a rough decade of prison and addiction and institutionalization and i thought like christianity or faith would make me whole and there was like this pink pink cloud like they say in aa or whatever where uh you're you almost believe it for a bit but then you know you wake up one day and it's like well i'm still not whole and gradually the faith either starts to crumble or you grasp onto some sort of fundamentalism so lately i've just been struggling with like um why embrace something that just deepens my sense of division in a way but this has been really helpful um for understanding a, a discourse to go forward with it so thank you no thank you hi peter um oh, I guess, yeah. back to the beginning 
of uh, our talk, you said that today is going to be about projection. So could you tie in how our discussion on the four discourses, or remind me again, how our discussion on the four discourses fits in with projection, just to sort of tie it together for us? Yeah, that's perfect. And actually, that's a great way to, to, to wrap it up. Um, uh, I'm also wrap well, but actually, we're, we're coming up to the hour. That's okay. I've left Jay downstairs, so I should go back down to see him. So Angus, thank you for the good wrap up. I mean, where I'm trying to link the two is in saying that the that transformance art is the congregation, without knowing it, are projecting their notion of ultimate reality and say God or ultimate reality onto the liturgical structure. So even though, and something I did, did at the wake talk, as I said, like when you first go to an analyst, you think they're just like me, potentially sometimes they're like, they're just a regular person like me. And then after a bit of analysis, you stop treating them like a normal person. They suddenly, without you realizing you're treating them like your mother or your father or your partner. Um, and then the third part of analysis, I don't know if I've talked about this in Wake or not, but is where you actually start dreaming about your analyst or your analyst becomes part almost like, almost like not just the screen upon which you've projected your parents, but um, they're, they're almost like a living, breathing reflection of that inner object, of that inner part of yourself. And at that point, when they speak, that can shift things. So... With in terms of the projection, I'm saying that somebody might go to ICON, and at first, you know, it's just oh, it's just a regular event, but but it starts to work when the people who go to ICON without realizing it assume that the liturgical structure is is they project their image of God onto it. It becomes the screen upon which they project God, and then hopefully through the art and the liturgy there's a certain point in which it becomes not just a screen upon which they project their notion of God, but it becomes the manifestation, the incarnation of that inner object. And so when that liturgical structure sa says, for example, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You, that inner projection, that inner notion of God as whole and complete as undivided is kind of gradually shaken because you've projected out and then you're getting the divided god back and that's for me the analyst and the hysterics discourse does that uh, does that kind of resonate or fit does that answer a little bit yeah that's good for me thanks peter thank you, thank you angus no i appreciate you bringing that out um okay there's maybe time for one more then is there anybody who wants to ask a final question or make a final comment or thought um, uh, hi pete oh hi kev um, I was I was thinking that is is this just archetypes packaged in a different form? Um, like oh you're you're say in the tarot form of archetype, like oh you're stuck in the page mentality and you need to you need to liquidize that and move on to the queen or uh, in the enneagram, like you think you're a three, but really you're uh -huh. all the numbers. Like is is this just is this this feels very Jungian? In a way. Well, yeah. Well, here, here's where I'll say I think the difference is, and then we can tease that out a bit more. Kate's looking happy. Is it um so what what Lacan is trying to do, successfully or not, is so he's a he's a structuralist, and this is why he's not Jungian. Jungian is not structuralist and tries to so so Jung is often looking for, so for example, in the archetypes, 
there might be, uh, you know, the idea of the trickster or the wise woman or something, some, some kind of like meaningful image. So if you have a dream and in that dream, there's a trickster figure and this can communicate. So it's all very good stuff, right? But what Lacan is trying to do is as, as a structuralist, he's trying to get rid of any form of what's called the imaginary, any form of um, uh, like wisdom like that. So if, if you did, or you want to go back and do the thing I did on, I think it's Levi Strauss. We've, we've, I, I don't know if I recorded it, but we did a reading on one of his essays. I was struggled to find it. Somebody asked for it recently. So I don't know if it was recorded. <laughs> um, is Levi Strauss's uh, critique of some readings of mythology is some readings of mythology are looking at like a dream book almost if you dream of water you look up the dream book and you you see what maybe water signifies for Levi Strauss um, everything means something in relation to its uh, contrast with something else language works not at the level so it's almost like chess right there's, there's the game of chess there's the pieces on the board but you can change the pieces out for anything, right? You get, you get, you know, a coin, you know, could, penny could be a, a pawn or whatever. So there's the pieces on the board and then there is the rules of the game and the rules of the game is where you can move and all of that. And what's important in chess is the structure, the underlying relations. So the reason why Lacan uses mathemes and uses matrices and uses this kind of like very mathematical type of language is precisely because he doesn't want it to be archetypal. He doesn't, he, he wants to avoid um, that type of, that type of discourse. But I, I don't feel I'm doing too much justice to this. Do you want to come back and poke at that a little bit more? Um, yeah, so is there the possibility here that there's something in the archetypes that, I don't know, that, can add to this discussion and something in thinking like that there are those there's innate patterns within us or within our unconscious or within our culture that in a way like these are getting funneled into these types of discourses that when you're in the hysteric discourse you might be also like this is just another way of looking at it you're in what the trickster archetype or whatever archetype is kind of there. And it's just, it's a way to add to the discussion rather than looking at it as something that's misinterpreting it. Yes. Well, okay. So what Lacan would say in a nutshell, I think is, or what Levi Strauss would say is that to take a myth or a dream, but let's take a myth is a myth is full of rich imagery and, 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 and myths are so different in the types of imagery they have, but there's some similarities. And Jung was very interested in those similarities across different cultures. So in one sense, when you read a myth, uh, Levi-Strauss says that you think anything could happen, but also at the same time, there's a lot of similarities, right? So it's a weird, bizarre thing of both feeling that, oh, somebody could turn into a butterfly or something crazy could happen, but there are some, some imagery that, that, that is quite consistent. Levi-Strauss wants to say that that's all good and that's all interesting, but at the core of myth, at the very, when you, when you strip, strip away all of the imagery, you get an underlying 
structure, an underlying set of relations. And by the way, for Levi-Strauss, the underlying set of relations is this, that all myths are attempting to overcome a contradiction. And a mature myth, and he kind of, so if you read this, the structure of myth, it's a brilliant essay, um, difficult at times, but you know, but you, it's very, very good essay, is, um, is he kind of says that all myths are trying to wrestle with some sort of contradiction. And when a myth really gets to maturity, because myths are told and retooled in different ways, eventually the contradiction is woven into the myth itself. And he, and Levi-Strauss kind of argues and tries to show that this is like universal. This is similar to what Lacan is doing with the four discourses. He wants to say that there's all sorts of ways we can talk, all sorts of ways that we can talk about a million different things. There's an infinite variety of different ways we can talk. But then Lacan wants to say, but you strip it all back and there are these very basic social relations that, 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 under, that underpin all types of rich communication. And Lacan's kind of like, you know, so I would say like archetypes could be very, very valuable and are very valuable. And Lacan wouldn't want to take away from that, but he would almost, I guess, say that, that even that, that all myths and stories and archetypes will be happening within a certain type of discourse, a certain kind of structure there. And that's what he's most interested in. I feel like I'm not doing justice to that, but I think the so, only way I can really do justice is to recommend that article, but come back to me, Kev. And then yeah. Oh, so, so it's kind of just the, the issue of like, you have a structure, you have form, but you also have content. Yes. And yes. the, the archetypes are, are getting a little bit more to, more at the content of this of the story. Like a story is going to have a beginning, middle, and end. But on, then on that beginning, middle, and end of all the stories is going to be filled in different ways. It's going to manifest in different ways. Yes. So it's kind of the structure versus content is hitting up against the universal, universal versus the particular a little bit. Yes. And, 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 it, and it's very much about what language is the nature of language. So for Levi-Strauss, one of the big one of the big innovations in the 20th century was linguistics. And in linguistics, there was before linguistics as a science arose, there was an idea that a word, a signifier and a signified were linked. So you go back far enough, the word tree is connected to tree. The signifier is the, the sign, the signified is the concept. And these are interconnected. And uh, uh, the Saussure, he basically showed that actually signifiers get their meaning not directly by being directly connected to a concept, but they get their meaning through their differential relationship to other signifiers. So in other words, concepts arise from this uh, differential relationship of signs. And so this is very important for Lacan, very important for Levi-Strauss, is the idea that, that what's important is the relationship between things, not things. Uh, like there's no direct relationship between a word and a concept. The concept arises because of this, this very interesting set of differences between words. Um, and that gets down to the core of, of why Lacan's interested in the underlying structures um, and creates these very bizarre math themes. 
But hey, we'll leave it there. And uh, <laughs> we're getting into some interesting territory. I think we'll do another reading group on that essay sometime if people are up for it. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining me in Belfast. Um, I didn't know I would have the energy. I always think I'm better in the morning than at night, but actually I just get energy from talking to people and chatting. So thank you for being part of this. Um, I will see you very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, you. cheers. we can have groups where that happens but it is not the liturgical r it's not it, the, the liturgical r is different now this is controversial you can all disagree with me here i had people disagree with me and i about this <laughs> but anyway but kev what like does that is that hitting what you're talking about yeah i yeah i think so um so controversially, yeah. Yeah, the Iraq war today would be vaccines. Like, so if I was running a church today, um, and a pyrotheology collective today in, in LA. Um, Are you going to ask people to wear masks? Are you going to ask people to be vaccinated to speak in front, to speak from the podium, things like that? Exactly. Like right. what are our roles going to arise out of, or are you just gonna say whatever, whatever the people in power are saying we're going to do we're going to follow that like yeah so then what does it end up looking like? yeah render of a caesar what a caesar like what this would be difficult so this is controversial i'd love anybody to disagree and go because this is the fun bit but what i would argue is yeah what you do what i would what i would choose to do is one go right whatever the authorities say this is the legal requirements that's what we're, that's what we'll do um and then anybody who wants us to take a position, we're going to offend everybody by offend. We're going to offend nobody by offending everybody, right? Because we're going to offend everybody by not, but people who are on either side want to take positions. And we're going to do that so that we can look at ourselves. And because everybody wants the liturgical structure to give the answer, right? People go to go like, what is the answer, right? What, 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 what should we do? And the liturgical structure is saying, we want you to take responsibility. This is the structure, but we want you to take responsibility by becoming much more aware of your own conflicts, your own antagonisms. That's what, that's what we're here to do. We're here to bring all of that out, to find out what are the antagonisms within us about this subject matter. Um, so a, a concrete example, the gathering we did in Icon called Queer, which was about sexuality, um, and, you know, in icons, lots of people here are gay, people here are straight, all of that. But this gathering, we said, listen, you know, that discussion about being gay, is being gay good or bad or whatever, is not one that's happening in this R, because what we want to do is more look at, um, we want to hear each other's stories. And so somebody stood up in the middle of the room, half naked, while this girl wrote queer, faggot, sodomite, honest flesh throughout the night. And there were these rocks in the room. And the liturgy that week was, you know, we all have our beliefs. So we all took rocks from the bar on the floor. And we had these rocks. And we said, we, we all have our views, but none of us want them to kill people. So what we're going to do is we're going to wrap these rocks in cotton wool. That was the liturgy. 
who are like, I still have my beliefs, but if I if I happen to throw this belief, I don't want it to hurt anybody. <laughs> so I'm wrapping it in cotton wool. And there were stories of somebody wrote this this satire about having to tell their parents they were straight, right? And they all these different stories from the community. But what we did is strangely, and, and say controversially, maybe we created a space where we said we want to encounter all of our antagonisms and struggles and allow this space to be a place where they come to the surface. But for me, that very gathering was what moved people in their thinking. So the guy, he was half naked in the middle of the bar was a YWAM or 21 year old YWAM kid. He said, can I be the guy standing there? He says, you know, I just, you know, it feels like it needs to be, and it was his girlfriend. He was writing these these this this stuff in black ink on his chest and uh, that was a profound experience for him but it was precisely because it was a it was a suspension of position that allowed him to change his position is it is it something that i guess for me i've noticed personally when I when I get hit in those situations because even, even even though my mindset's opening up on stuff I still get hit with something right in your face of someone believing something different. I, I guess the difference for me personally now is I'll, I'll keep some stuff internally and try to process, manage, so that I don't actually vomit my thought over someone to actually then manage them and get them to change to what I'm thinking. And, and I'm just wondering is have we spent so much time in trying to change the way other people think instead of actually stopping and gaining tools for ourselves of how to manage ourselves in those situations, but also having those spaces like, um, for, for me, even a big one was the beginning of this year, jumping on and doing wake it is something so foreign that it, it, it's, it's different and it's freeing. And some of the things that I heard, during it and you'd hear some stories that people would share from past ones is where people could actually come and and let go of who they are for a couple of days to a week and then go home it's almost like that that community of where you can be truly human is needed because there's moments in our life where we go back and we're not whether it's with family we we go we, we hang with people at christmas our family and we behave a certain way but then we also need some other places of maybe where we can actually be real and human and let that out. And, and um, yeah, I don't know, just, I suppose, thinking around that way of, to me, that's what I thought the church was meant to be. Um, but I think we've taken it in, in, a, in, in a way of trying to, um, we, we welcome you in until, and until you you say a prayer or do something and then you've got to behave a certain way um, why am I threatened by that because it actually probably threatens me because of the junk in my closet at home that I'm not willing to I, I can't say in that place but you enter a space like wake and you can actually say it and someone else says oh yeah well I've got this I've got this like the AA meeting and they go oh really yeah oh wow and uh and, and yeah so I just and, and I wonder with that the breakfast club even with that that idea is that the thing that I, I know I just wrote a word down was um, they were in a detention, which technically, yes, it was forced, but it's an unforced community in, in that aspect of they're just there because that's what they've got to do. And then they find the common thing is just being there 
and they do walk away afterwards and do their own world, their own thing. But it's not like there's a belief system or something heavy forcing them. You've got to be here or parents or whatever. Um, icon, similar thing. You might be curious and you just turn up and you go, someone's cool here. I feel free. It, it's, it, it's, and, and being, being human, I think that's another one. I think you were saying just then is um, maybe the focus is actually what it is to be human, not actually what it is to be a supporter of this club or this thing. And, yeah. and can we live with that in others as well as ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, that, and that what it is to be human, which for me is to be, to be a divided subject. But yeah, sorry, Marta, did you want to share something? Yeah. Did I see it? Yeah, I, I just want to say that it sounds to me like, like what I consider growth, that that's my, um, my trajectory in life, I guess, to be uh, more open to who I who I really am and how I really affect others and are affected by others and and just learning to uh, as you as you said I think to understand the lack that I have uh, that I don't have all the answers and uh, I'm not um, I mean I, I believe that that I should love and care for my neighbors and and I'm learning how to do that in a way that's good and healthy for us all. So, so I mean, it sounds like growth. It sounds like growth. Thank you. And uh, Brissa, did you want to jump in there? Last thought, you had your mic. Oh. No, yeah, I was just. Yeah, well, I, I guess I, my, I guess is what we're trying to say, um, is it less about finding communion, but um, when you embrace your lack and you're not trying to go into situations trying to prove anything, like then communion will be created in those spaces, maybe? I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, uh, instead of trying to find communion, like, in all these spaces, like, can that just be created by, like, is that what, we're, is that what you're kind of saying? Like, if we embrace our own lack and see that other people are lacking, that um, a communion can be created in that space, even if we totally have different, you know, ideas on life and everything. Hundred percent. If you're saying it like that, I'm disconnects actually with what's Marta was saying. That, like, I think if you're if you're able to in your own being in your own life, if you've had enough growth and you've done enough personal work, that you are genuinely able to make peace with and even and enjoy one's own contradictions and lacks, then, then that is going to have an impact in your relationships with other people. Like some, I love that verse that says, you're the room of life to some people to stink of death. Like some people won't like it if they're too closed off in themselves, it's kind of threatening. So, but, but, but one of the things I love about, I mean, Lacan said like really the only training that's necessary for a psychoanalyst is to have gone through psychoanalysis. In other words, to have got to a point where they are able to have that conversation with their own unconscious and that that they are able to tolerate that that difficulty and then you're able to i think in a sense bring that wherever you go so is that what you're saying like to whether it's with your family or your friends or within a church group if you're able to model that in yourself this community will arise is that what you're saying or yeah, I think I was just kind of asking, like, if, um, you know, if I'm always searching for this, like this type of community, 
like um, instead of finding it, you know, when embracing like you, like looking at your own lack and seeing that other slack that the like the communion can be created in, in that space, you know, that you weren't necessarily looking for. Oh yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I kind of like, this can happen as well in, a, in any setting really. That's why I said it can happen anywhere uh, or can be discovered to happen anywhere. So uh, yeah. Um, okay, that's, that's us. Anybody want to throw in a final thought before we close up? Um, I'll just say, yeah, that was for, you know, that we got quite into the, 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 the meat of things a little bit there. What does it actually look like? But I think it's so important to do that. It's like, well, what does it mean? Not abstractly about whatever, like concretely, what does it mean today with Republicans and Democrats, with, with COVID, with uh, um, uh, various other issues? What does it mean to to be able to, to have this kind of space. And uh, so it's just, these are scary conversations, but they're vital. <laughs> so um, uh, thanks for being part of this. I will see you all next week. And if you're bored, re-watch or watch for the first time uh, Breakfast Club as a good lesson in how to do it. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Pete. Have a good week.